your head out of the clouds Get your feet back on the ground Get stuck into pop culture We'd stick around Hallo und willkommen in Stick Around the podcast that can't mask its contempt for those refusing to wear face coverings in shops. Brought to you by Claims For You. Have you been forced to wear a mask while also wearing spectacles? Give us a call. You may be due condensation. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. um, I, I'm guessing you, you'd say that's an accurate uh, joke, Michael. As a fellow specs wearer. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's it's fair to say, yeah, the evidence would suggest so. <laughs> uh, Michael, what on earth inspired the German start, which nearly scuppered my tagline, because I was trying to hold it together. I just, just thought I'd make it unpredictable. It was, it was very unpredictable. <laughs> <laughs> Completely threw me for a loop. <laughs> How many episodes have we've never had a, we've never had a multilingual intro? I don't think we have no. So um, yeah. maybe we should do that for for the next few episodes. Uh, different language each time. We could butcher a different language every time. Absolutely. <laughs> Not that Michael butchered it there. It was absolutely perfect. <laughs> Clive, coming uh, from a you, German ne- speaker. I think next week you could do a Swiss German version for us. Yeah, yeah, okay, I can do. Would that. It be I'll do much it in different? the most like I'll do it, I'll do it as like the most dialect version of Swiss German possible. Right. Okay. I'll, no, I'll do like different- full on cheese territory. So. You know, up until how different would it be to a standard German one? Um, I'll let you be the judge next week. Okay. <laughs> it depends which accent I go for, but it could be quite substantially different. But yeah, we'll see. Um, anyway, you mentioned many episodes. It's in fact been this is the hundred fifty seventh episode of Stick Around. Welcome. Um, I'm here as usual recently in lockdown, with uh, general expert Alex Wayne. Hello. And general expert Michael Johnson. What up? Um, I've actually managed to visit Alex Wayne last week on the way back from a little uh, jaunt into Northumberland, which was lovely. Fortunately, was. Michael was working, bloody corporate. Yeah. Um, Always, you know, time is money. That's Michael's... Michael's got a tattoo on his chest of that. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas you just don't give a fuck, so you were just like... Furlough me. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm funny you should say that. I'm back in work tomorrow. Oh, uh, really? Okay. Yeah. Oh. I'm. 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 You sound I'm delighted a... about that call. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I. I am genuinely quite happy, and it's to start with. It's only three days a week, so I'm furloughed for two still, which oh, so is probably like sort of an ease back in. Back to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy with that. Phasing you back into work after the trauma of being furloughed. I like it. Well, I just hope I can remember how to do my job. Um, I'd only been in it three months, and I've been furloughed four months. And uh, mm. we're quite busy, apparently. Uh, we'll see. Oh, okay, cool. Well, good luck with that. Um, how's how's everyone's weeks been other than that? Anything particularly eventful happened for anyone? Obviously, the most eventful thing for you, Alex Wayne, was me visiting you, but anything else happened? Uh, well, I took up some carpets. Um, oh. Well... That was hard work, and I think I punctured myself on nails that haven't been moved since the 1970s. Oh, um, punctured yourself? What, in your foot, I'm assuming? Uh, no, on my hands, actually, um, ripping up uh-huh. the carpet. Do you need a tetanus uh, jab? 
and eh, now nah, I'll be fine. I'm, you know, I can fight off tetanus, no problem. This, that sounds like famous last <laughs> famous words. last words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've you've got you've got my permission to put that on my tombstone. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, it's going to be in the article, isn't it? I'll explain. Famously quoted on his last stick around episode. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, this won't be a problem for me. <laughs> Actually, I think I think Nicola got punctured even more than me. Um, but uh, yeah, turns out that when people put down carpets in the seventies or the eighties or whenever it was, they used a combination of nails and staples. Um, yeah, that sounds like pretty hard work. To be fair, Michael been doing any grafting or anything? No, I've got nothing to compare to that. To be honest, no. Fairly uneventful. Fair play. That's podcast gold right there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, cool story. Bro. Um, how was your trip to I'll North make sure I'll come back to you next time. <laughs> uh, funny you should ask, Al. Um, yeah, it was great, actually. I had a good time. I just did a lot of walking on the beach. Um, pretty much it. I went for a swim a lot in the North Sea, which was great. Uh, a bit cold, but I'm born on the Alps, so it wasn't really a problem. Um yeah, it was good. I really enjoyed it. I like Northumberland a lot. It's not like it wasn't too busy. I was worried it was going to be really busy because we went in October last year, and it wasn't busy then. But I thought that's just because it's October. But still, wasn't that busy. The sea was just too cold for people. Um, so yeah, enjoy. It was nice. We were only there for like four days, but it was just great to get out of the bloody house. So and could go to a different area. <laughs> uh, yeah, especially as someone who doesn't drive. Um, and obviously wouldn't be really using public transport now unless it was a real emergency or I needed it to get to work, which I don't. Um, I've not really been very far, probably further than like two miles from my house, which which my morning run. So yeah, it was nice to get away. Enjoyed it. Um, But anyway, let's get started. So I think you two have both got a bit more than me, a bit more to bring this episode than I have, which standard. Um, So let's go to, I think... We went to, I don't think we went, I think we went to Eagles Cliff second last time. So we're going to go to Eagles Cliff first this time. And we're going to continue with a silly eagle noise that definitely isn't the noise that eagles make. Cacao! Cacao! It's more of a parrot. Before I let Michael get into that, I visited Michael as well this week. I was just about to say this myself. (laughs) Oh, I'll I'll let you do it then, Michael. No, no, go for it, go for it. Well, I was just going to say, I didn't see any eagles, but uh, there are a lot of pigeons that like to hang out in Michael's garden. Um, there was a fat pigeon, and um, Alex has a theory that it actually imitates an eagle, and that that's the <laughs> source of the confusion. Like, that's why it's prob- so fat. <laughs> well, it's probably never been an eagle. It's just been a fat, <laughs> fat aggro pigeon. <laughs> Teaside pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking massive. It must be an eagle. Oh no, it's just a fat pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that did happen, but. Um, yeah, so, um, well, last night, um, Apocalypse Now was on, so I thought I'd rewatch it. Uh, it was the Redux version, which I'd never seen before. Um, oh, okay. And I have to say, um, the additions to it, um, especially one quite lengthy scene, which is the most notable addition, I think, do seem a bit pointless to me, um, and maybe a little bit indulgent from uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Um, but the, the original, I've, I've, from the first time I saw it, I thought was uh, was masterful. So I don't think it really needed tinkering with, although he obviously disagreed with that. Um, although it is interesting to read um, 
some of the processes of the creation of the film, some of the amount of footage that he um, he sifted through to put it together that he'd shot. Um, I think the film. Uh, I mean, it's probably. I think it's it's part of what I think is really a trio of um, films that are held up as the um, the gold standard of Vietnam war films, along with um, Full Metal Jacket and The Deer Hunter, unless I've made any omissions. Uh, and a genre that keeps um, that keeps on um, providing films. I think in a way that um, sort of Iraq and Afghanistan haven't done, or they haven't produced those conflicts haven't produced as arty a sort of standard of film. I think as um, as Vietnam has, and it's it continues to be an obsession for for writers and filmmakers. Um, I think you didn't wasn't the didn't you uh, t- you talked about a, a, a Vietnam War film this year? I think on the podcast, Alex. Was it a Spike Lee, or was it a, he was affiliated with it in some way? Um, yes. What film was that though? I found. Oh, uh, were you thinking about Da Five Bloods, which yeah. I haven't seen? Oh, I thought you had. No, no, I'm planning to see it. I oh. haven't seen it yet though, but it's on Netflix. It's available if you want to watch it. Oh, you must have mentioned it at some point then. Yeah, I don't. I haven't seen it yet, so I won't have reviewed it. I'm pretty no. shameless. Um. I've handed in many a uh, you know university slash uh, school bit of coursework having not read the book, uh, but uh, I <laughs> but wouldn't do that on the podcast. Well, yeah, no, not for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, so, but as I said, obviously this this is a it's an area that that people keep exploring. Um, but apocalypse now, I think, is generally regarded as the um, as the very zenith of that. Uh, it's I think it it takes you to obviously. The um, right into the centre of the darkness of not Vietnam but America, of course, and it does that most effectively through a string of highly evocative set pieces. Um, the um, probably the most famous of which, with um, its its iconic quote, "I love the smell of napalm in the morning," is the surfing scene, and I always think that's really it's a really important scene because I'm always astonished by and I think this is healthy but I'm always surprised by the um the diversity of views on that scene apparently some people seem to think that it is have been critical of the scene because they think it glamorizes war which astounds me because to, to me it seems to be doing the exact opposite um you know so I, by, that's a, that's I, that's what I always think about when I think about that scene the fact that people can come to a scene and come away with completely different, having taken completely different messaging from it. Um, but I mean, to me, this film this film is entirely critical of uh, of the Vietnam War and war in general. Uh, there's, it's it's well, I think it won the it won the Oscar, I believe, for uh, best sound editing, and some of the music involved uh, basically can't can't really be detached from its use in the film so there's um, famous use of Ride of the Valkyries in the film and also it would be impossible to go back and listen to The End by The Doors, divorced from the context that it's used in in this film as well um, there's um, well I think the the final passage of the film is highly hallucinatory when um, Martin Sheen's Willard finally tracks down uh, Marlon Brando's rogue colonel, Colonel Kurtz, um, and his well, Brando's appearance um, with his shaved head uh, and the appearance that he's uh, the way it's shot suggests that he's um, physically massive, um, 
and also his monologuing nature really all put me in mind of um, one of the um, one of the most unforgettable characters in literature that I've come across, uh, Judge Holden from Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. I thought you were going to say that, yeah. Yeah, the only difference is that Colonel Kurtz has eyebrows. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so and uh, a character who's considered, of course, quite unplayable. One of the reasons why Blood Meridian has famously never been never been attempted on the big screen. Uh, but yeah, that that entire final section is quite cryptic. Uh, every time you, uh, I think it, it enhances the repeat value of watching the film, which I've only watched, um, I think, th- three or four times in total. But each time you come back to it, you know, you don't. I don't really come away with any more answers than the previous time, and I think that that enhances the repeat value as I serve watching it uh, repeatedly. Uh, I know some people think that the ending is quite weak in a sense, possibly for exactly the same reason. It doesn't really provide anything particularly satisfactory but you know that's one of the things i actually enjoy about it uh so i, I mean i haven't I haven't gone as deeply as i could into the the film there i've just listed some of the reasons why i admire it um and i think it is it is one of the from what i've seen it's one of it's one of the towering documents of the the new hollywood movement and i haven't explored um coppola's work very much at all i have to say um, I know me and Alex were just discussing him briefly the other night and the fact that after this, with the exception of The Godfather Part 3, which was obviously highly scrutinised for clear reasons didn't really have any films that went on to make as huge an impact as this one, after this one in 1979 uh, so a, a, it's a fascinating film for many reasons and has been poured over academically and otherwise for in the decades since it was released for exa- exactly that reason um, th- this used to be one of my controversial opinions, my my queef, if you like. I used <laughs> to not like. I used to not like uh, Apocalypse Now, and I used to describe it by a word you used earlier. I used to think it was indulgent. Um, mm-hmm. At that point, I'd only actually seen the Redux version. Right. Um, I watched it a couple of years ago. Um, just, I'm not actually sure which version it was, but it was definitely uh, shorter, and my opinion went up on it a lot. Um, I think um, there is a bit of a there is an an indulgent trend with a lot of war movies. It has to be said. You mentioned another one there, uh, another one which I still have a low opinion of is the Deer Hunter. Um, I think that that is yeah maybe not. I want my instinctive words there were indulgent trash, but maybe that's being harsh. But um, I'm not a huge fan of the Deer Hunter either. I think to me, still the definitive. Uh, Vietnam movie is uh, Full Metal Jacket, but um, th- this would be a competitor, obviously. Yeah, well, full, the, yeah, well, I like uh, I like the Deer Hunter, but Full Metal Jacket is um, well, it's I mean, I mean it's, yeah, I'm not sure it's the right word to describe a film about the Vietnam War, but it's just flat out fun, really, to watch, uh, and stru- structurally, it's extremely mm. interesting. Um, yeah, it doesn't. It's not quite so fun as it progresses um, for exactly that reason, but. But yeah, um, I think I probably prefer Apocalypse Now. But yeah, they're both great, uh, both well, both excellent movies. I would say. Um, Interestingly, uh, oh sorry, just no, go on very quickly. Um, you know, since this, um, I'm looking at his IMDb now, mm-hmm. and uh, I hadn't realised he'd been responsible for the Robin Williams films Jack, which, uh, which I'm not sure if you remember that he's. A young boy who looks like a forty-year-old no, man. It's terrible. 
Uh, you would never have put that guess that was him. But anyway, sorry, Clive, <laughs> I got you off there. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, I was just going to come in and say, big fan of Full Metal Jacket. Love it. Um, Apocalypse Now, I've seen, but it was so long ago that I really don't remember it. I need to rewatch it. It was, again, as I often say, pre probably really appreciating cinema and i think probably watched in uh, the fact i remember very little of it suggests that i probably watched it in a situation where i wasn't really paying all that much attention maybe with like a group of friends or something and it was just on um so yeah it's definitely one that's on the list for me to check out because i do like vietnam war movies i'm a big fan of platoon i think thin red lines also excellent um yeah, I, yeah so i should just i just wanted to say as well um I like uh, Dennis Hopper's appearance in this film. I think the first... When I previously seen this film, I didn't know who he was, but in the intervening years, I've seen Blue Velvet, and once you've seen that, you know who Dennis Hopper is. So, yeah. But um, it's it's interesting the point you've made about it's a very... It's a war that people seem to really like making films about, and that does have a bit of a history of uh, great cinema about it, and I do wonder whether... I don't know, it's interesting, isn't it? Part of it, I think, is the the sort of landscape that Vietnam has that makes it a bit more, I don't know, some, somehow the jungle nature of it seems to be yeah. what appeals maybe in some way. But I don't know. There's obviously other factors, but it's definitely a very popular thing in cinema. But also I suppose it was just such a massive cultural thing in, in you know, the 60s and 70s um, at the time, like in music and also all, all over the place. So maybe that's, whereas you'd say maybe, um, like the Afghanistan war and the Iraq thing aren't really as much, I'd say. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's almost something folkloric about the Vietnam War um, mm. that was clear as it was happening as well. Whereas, I mean, if you think about modern weaponry, um, the nature of modern warfare, I think it's re- there's really not that same element to it. Um, I think just just thinking about it is um, it's a physically draining exercise. Uh, I don't know if that yeah. makes sense, but that's how I'm feeling. No, about it's the less yeah. like... It's less concrete, isn't it? Because I guess the stereotype thing of someone just flying a drone into somewhere yeah. is completely detached from actually what they're doing in a way. And I suppose it's similar for people hearing about the war going on. It's less obvious of like, oh, well, there's loads of troops been sent in, blah, blah, blah. That obviously still happens, but... Yeah. No, for sure, yeah. It's much different. Yeah. I mean, it's... I, I, was, trying, I was struggling to think of uh, war movies made about Afghanistan or Iraq and... Part of me feels that probably the, the best efforts are probably being made by filmmakers from Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but, Quite probably, yeah. Uh, pr- probably the only one I can think of that I remember thinking was a good movie was The Hurt Locker. Um, but then That's what I was going to bring up, actually, but I couldn't remember if it was Afghanistan or not. Okay. I mean, the only other one I can think of offhand is American Sniper, which I hated. I thought it was yeah. uh, jingoistic <laughs> rubbish. Um, but yeah, you made a you know, good point there, Michael. I don't think there has been any, maybe not any legendary films about this war. Anyway, that's the thing. Yeah, I don't think there's been anything on that level. I just thought of it because this isn't this isn't um, on that level whatsoever. But I just thought of a one that I thought was quite good. Um, when Clive mentioned drones, Good Kill. Do you remember that? Yeah, that that was a good film. Um, even though it, it kind of is a war film, it almost feels like it isn't as well because it's so detached from. Well, that, that's its point, I guess. Yeah. 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 But yeah, that was uh, that was solid. Um, I preferred it to the Hurt Locker or American Sniper, anyway. Certainly. Mm-hmm. I've not seen that, but I'll have to check it out. Um, cool. Right. Well, let's go to Alex Wayne in Stockton in the okay, uh, in cool. Wayne Manor, um, which I've now seen. 
Yes, and what what a manner it is. Uh, Although, take I've it not seen it in its currently uncarpeted uh, state. Uh, just about to say, was it still carpeted when you visited? Oh, it was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not Very much so. Not, not getting stabbed by staples. No. <laughs> Um, okay, so the, the the first movie I'm going to talk about today, anybody who follows me on Twitter knows I've had to work quite hard to see. Um, <laughs> it's a film called Clemency. Um, in the UK, you can only watch it on Curzon Home Cinema. Um, oh, God, okay. <laughs> and it's not cheap. It's £10 to rent. Um, I had a bit of an effort just trying to get it to work because the Curzon app was frequently failing. In the end, they extended my rental so I could watch it and... You know, no further action taken, but it was frustrating. (laughs) Um, This is a film I was really excited to see because, um, for a start, it's about a subject matter, which I'll go into in a minute, which is uh, one I've always been fascinated by. And it had been well-reviewed by people um, I respect the opinion of. Um, It's directed and written by Chinoye Chukwu. Um, Apologies if I pronounce that wrong. Uh, stars Alfred Woodard, Aldis Hodge, and Wendell Pierce, among others. Um, a brief summary of the plot: um, Bernadine Williams, played by Woodard, is a prison warden in a maximum security prison. Uh, this prison has a death row. Um, her first first execution, or well, her eleventh execution, uh, but the first in the movie, uh, goes quite badly wrong in a, at the start of the film, and it begins to lead to her questioning. Uh, the morality of the death penalty. Um, having previously considered herself not a, a champion of it, but somebody who is a purely professional uh, facilitating it. Um, this leads to a breakdown in her personal life uh, with her husband, uh, Jonathan, played by Wendell Pierce. And it, it centres around the upcoming execution of Anthony Woods, uh, played by Aldous Hodge, whose guilt is under serious doubt. Uh, This is inspired by the real-life execution of Troy Davis in 2011, whose guilt was also under question. I have no idea, um, I haven't gone over that in any great detail, so I don't have an opinion about whether he really should have faced justice or not, but um, it'll be no surprise to anybody that I'm against the death penalty. Um, This is about as close as you can get to a perfect film. Um, The... I mean, purely from a technical perspective, the cinematography and direction are in perfect sync. Now, that might sound like, uh, you know, something that's an obvious point, um, but there's so many movies where the actual choices that the, the director makes with the narrative do not fit well with the way it's shot. Um, this is shot by Eric Branco, and they clearly made it in tandem together. Um, Woodard is... Oh, I don't know how to describe this. She... She's a kind of a, a slowly boiling kettle of a performance. Um, very subtle, very selfless. Um, doesn't dominate the screen, and it feels all the more authentic. Um, it feels at times like you're watching a documentary crew following someone around. Although that isn't how the film's shot or set at all. Um, this is the kind of performance that should be awarded, but typically doesn't get nominated for awards. Um, often the film. Uh, we'll deal in close-up shots of Woodard's face uh, for her reactions, and she can do so much just with a flicker of her eye or a flicker of her mouth, uh, and it's quite intense at times. Um, the subject is obviously one that's been explored a lot in film and TV, and it, it, it's like I said earlier, it's one that's fascinated me. 
Um, I think the best non-fiction or documentary uh, I've seen on this Into the Abyss, it's a Werner Herzog documentary. The, the film is... I don't know how to put this the way I want to, how inarticulate, but um, it's a film that you will experience as much as you will enjoy. Um, the film isn't melodramatic. There aren't any rage-inspiring moments as such, or certainly not in films that you might have seen in the past. Um, the film feels like a very authentic dissection of somebody just doing their job versus the consequences of it. Um, I mean, the death penalty has been proven time and again as not an effective deterrent. Um, that, that's putting aside the moral the moral perspective. And it's, it's also more expensive than housing people for life. Uh, because of the amount of appeals that are needed, and probably the worst point, uh, you know, you put innocent, potentially putting innocent people to death. Um, I haven't seen a better film on the subject. It's worth every penny of that ten pounds uh, and the effort I had to put into watching it. Um, it's my favourite film of the year so far. Wow! Um, wow! Yeah, that sounds really good. Can you just tell me the name again, Alex? I missed, I missed, heard all about the uh, Curzon uh, <laughs> part and missed the name. Clemency. <laughs> Clemency, great. Is, okay. I was just wondering whether I'd heard of if it. Anyone that, doesn't, if anyone doesn't know what that means, that is somebody being let off their sentence. So right up until the last minute before an execution, uh, the governor of the majority of the states that have uh, a, a death row can forgive the sentence. So they can just downgrade them to lifetime in prison or they can potentially free them, although that nearly never happens. Uh-huh. Okay, I see. Um, yeah, this sounds really interesting. I'm definitely going to add this to the list. I've been struggling a bit with... Um, this is usually the kind of time where I start to go start watching the films from the year ready to have an opinion on the list at the end of the year because it's usually the time where you can start to find things that have come out earlier in the year to watch at home on whatever Google Play or whatever to rent. Um, and also just, you know, cinema usually. <laughs> but obviously there's been... It's a bit of a weird one because I've not been to the cinema at all since obviously lockdown because it's not been uh-huh. open. And I wasn't, I didn't go that many times before. Um, so yeah, I feel like I'm really behind on this year's film watching, but I'm hopefully going to catch up on a few things and I'll definitely add this to the list and hopefully have a better experience with the Curzon app by the sounds of it. <laughs> I mean, uh, strictly speaking, it's a 2019 film. I think it began uh, showing in, in America at least in 2019, okay. but it, did, it hasn't made it to the UK till 2020. Um, okay, well, we always do twenty. We always do UK lists, so yeah, it's all good. How many? Uh, how many things have you seen Woodard in, Alex? Not many at all. Um, in fact, I actually struggle offhand to name another one. Uh, but right. she she is a very good actress. Um, well, certainly from this. Um, yeah. Well, the re- the reason I asked was because a review that I read of Clemency. Um, well, I was going to say implied, but no, suggested quite strongly that Woodard hadn't won Oscars in her career because of racism. I mean, that was that was the tack that the review took. Um, I, I couldn't really comment on that. Um, I mean, I'm looking down her um, IMDb now, and I have seen her in a few things, mainly in smaller roles. So she was in 12 Years a Slave. Uh, yeah. She was in a Captain America film. She was in... Well, she was a voice in the recent Lion King adaptation. Um, but I don't think I've seen her in many of the other films but I mean even if she's I very much doubt it but even if she'd been rubbish the rest of her career um, she's unbelievable in this Um, and 
it's like like I said, uh, the authenticity of it, or, or at least you know what I feel must be the authenticity, because she she's not a character like who she's not pro death penalty. It's never really explored whether she is generally for it or generally against it. She's just a professional, and she takes yeah. great pride in the fact that she thinks she's giving treating these men with dignity, uh, you know, taking them through the process with sympathy, treating them as normal human beings, albeit one that she's about to put to death. Um, but it's that slow breakdown in the fact that she takes such pride in her professionalism, you know, to the point where she, it, it you know, the conflict within her is destroying her personally and her personal life. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Definitely add it to the list. Uh, great, right, well, I guess we're around to me. So I've just got the one thing that I'm going to talk about before you two mention your other ones. Um, I'm going to talk about, I think I've mentioned this before, it sounds like, um, I've been watching a lot of Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown, which is a an American travel and food show. It's on Netflix. I think it's on quite a lot of things. I think it's also on Prime, but I think maybe um, certain seasons are on different ones. I'm not quite sure how it works because there's a lot of seasons, which I'll get into. Um, it started in 2013, finished in 2018 after 12 seasons, according to Wikipedia, and 104 episodes. So there's plenty there. Um, Bourdain was, um, he was actually working on a show about Strasbourg when he hung himself in 2018 and was found by his um, frequent collaborator, Eric Ripper, I think you pronounce it, um, after he'd missed dinner and breakfast. Um, he first became known as a chef, and this is all stuff that I've sort of looked into afterwards. I didn't really know. I'd heard the name. I didn't really know why who, who he was particularly. Um, he first became known as a chef, and particularly for his book, um, Kitchen Confidential Adventures in the Culinary Underbelly, which I now really want to read, but haven't read yet. Um, it's certainly on the list, and I'll probably... Um, I don't know if he narrate if he narrates the audiobook version, which I think he does. I'm definitely going to go for that version because his voice is cracking. Um, the show generally focuses on cities, but also larger areas such as states in America sometimes. Uh, but it has a completely different feel to other travel documentaries I've watched. Um, I, I quite enjoy travel documentaries sometimes, but feel that they're a bit sort of overly... A bit, a bit too much sheen to them and they don't have anything new to say um, whereas Bourdain isn't really interested in the most famous parts of cities um, he generally, and even the most famous cities I think he does. He probably does go to Paris and Rome and stuff, I don't know because I've not um, browsed all 100 and, <laughs> 104 episodes um, but he tends to, I've noticed, focus on uh, the sort of lesser known stuff um, and he, he generally tries to capture the energy of a place, usually kind of focusing on one or two aspects of the cities. And, uh, for example, um, the one I just watched last night, which was excellent, is on Cologne. And he focuses on the kind of, um, you know, the fact um, Germany took in 1.1 million refugees and uh, the kind of acceptance and general tolerance there is towards that, particularly in Cologne. Um, and obviously the the events of New Year, which led that into question. Um and he kind of questions locals, famous and normal citizens about the place over a sort of whole variety of brilliantly described dishes, which is where the food comes in. Um, he, all his interviews will take place. Well, not all, but the vast majority will take place at some restaurant over some food and he'll describe the food that he's having and, um, you know really <laughs> great way that makes you want to eat it um his his weathered voice is a real joy to listen to and he's got a way of, of describing things like i've mentioned that really kind of makes you want to eat whatever he's eating or go to the places that he's going to um the episodes are named after places and focus on the places like i say but really the show is 
more about the people in those places. Like you're not going to see Bourdain wander around some cathedral and talk about the history of the place. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but um, Bourdain's very much about speaking to locals or people who've moved to a specific place um, and maybe lived there for a while to try to get the, to the bottom of why they personally like the place so much or to get to the bottom of a specific aspect of the place that he's looking into. Uh, whether it be the drinking culture or whatever. Um, and it's through the people that he kind of brings out the uniqueness of the city. Um, there's a quote in Switzerland, or I, I don't know if this is, I don't think it's a general Swiss quote. I think it's just something my dad says or someone, <laughs> something that someone said to him uh, that goes something like, um, he used to say, roughly translate it, he used to say, river tick, church tick, castle tick, old town tick. Now let's get to actually know the place by talking to someone, um, which, is, <laughs> which is kind of true. Um, a lot of cities... What makes cities isn't really the buildings because I feel like whenever I've done traveling, you go to a place and the first city's like, whoa, it's completely different because I might be in a different continent or whatever. But then if you visit other cities in the continent, it's going to be more or less the same with, you know, there might be some variation or some nice bits and some great stuff to look at, no doubt. But what really makes the place is the the kind of culture that's surrounding those buildings, um, which is obviously the people. Um, And that's what I think Bourdain does so well to bring out. He's got this kind of open and yet, opinionated interview style um and an incredible willingness to just drink a lot with locals everywhere (laughs) 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 definitely enjoys a drink um he's kind of largely behind that i think the way he does the interviews um over a over a pint or over a beer depending on where he is um and while eating food makes the conversations feel more natural it doesn't feel like an interview it feels like a chat over some food which is basically what it is um and that's kind of the stuff I've been I've always been interested in listening to people's conversations kind of regardlessly how <laughs> of how inane they are um, if they're from a different place or you know have different views and things I find that kind of stuff fascinating it's the main reason I like traveling is talking to different people whether they be locals or not um, and the camera work also deserves a mention it, it, I think the main the heart of the thing is definitely his style and the way he interviews people and the way he talks about things but also the way it's produced very much fits that really well so i think that the camera work deserves a mention because it's shot in a quite a real um not not handy cam but like a it feels natural it's not doesn't have that um sort of un um sort of fake sheen that a lot of travel documentaries have and it doesn't have you know endless drone shots and you know stuff like that that is great fine love it on planet earth etc um but <laughs> Sometimes it can be nice to just get down on the street and look at some um, some of the restaurants that might not look uh, stunning inside or whatever, but other restaurants that locals go to and like, and you know, explain the food that gets made there and talk to some of the locals there, and I don't know, get get into the underbelly of the place. Um, to quote his own book. So yeah, I've only watched. I've well, it seems like a lot, it's quite a lot to be fair. I've probably watched about fifteen episodes. Um, me and Elle watch watch it quite a lot, and you don't have to watch them in order, which is great. Um, so it's the perfect thing to, if we're not sure what to watch, we'll just, you know, go through the stupendously large list. I don't think they're all on Netflix, but there's definitely a lot of them on Netflix. When I saw that there were 12 seasons, I was a bit shocked. So I think <laughs> uh, there's maybe half that on Netflix. I'm not sure, but it's definitely a hell of a lot. Um, so, yeah, we'll just look through the list and see, decide where we're going to, you know, where which one we want to watch and, and watch that. And I think they're like 45 minutes to an hour. So... Yeah, you know, you're going to get a good feel for the energy of a place, I think. I think it's impossible to really get, you know, to A, give you a good idea of what the place is, the history of a place in an hour, um, and especially not without being there. But he does a real, he really brings across the energy of a place, which is, to me, 
the fun part about learning about new places. So yeah, I'd really recommend it. It's something that I didn't really, I expected to be, oh yeah, this is, you know, fine entertainment, but not more than that. But I think it is more than that. And I really, really like it. Um, so yeah, I'd definitely recommend it. I can't. I can't say. I, I never heard of this, and I'll be honest. I probably wouldn't have considered watching it, but it it, it sounds interesting, and I, and I do. In, I do, I'm a bit of a sucker for a travel program. Um, I'm a big fan of Travel Man with Richard Ayoade. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. I haven't seen it, no, but I want to because I like Richard Ayoade a lot. <laughs> well, it's just him with well, usually a, another comedian uh, spending forty eight hours in uh, some city or location. And it's very good. The, the one you're talking about sounds a bit deeper um, and less comedic, but um, yeah, I'm, I am a bit of a sucker for travel programs. Michael, have you seen this one or heard of it? No, uh, I can't say I was uh, all familiar with it. Um, I don't. I mean, I don't know if it's the sort of thing I usually watch typically. Um, like, like it was interesting that Ayoade was just mentioned there because he, um, you know, I was a big fan of some of the. Uh, acting roles he had and then also as a, as a filmmaker as well but um, lately it seems like the, this is the sort of thing he's been doing more and to me it's a bit fluffier um, it's not really the sort of thing I go for so um, I, can, I can see the appeal and these things always have, they're always interesting because they, they, you know, they tell you a lot about a certain subject that you might not be expecting when you go into them um, they're just not always the, something that I sit down and prefer to watch when it comes down to it that's all yeah, that's fair enough. Definitely, I think this is. <clears throat> I would. I'm pretty much agree with you, Michael. <laughs> I generally don't either. Um, but yeah, I think this one is quite different in that way. Somehow, uh-huh. it doesn't feel. It doesn't feel fluffy somehow. I think that's what I like about it. <laughs> uh, that's good though. Yeah. Um. So yeah, would definitely recommend it. But um, let's go back around to you then, Michael, for your second contribution. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'd, I've revisited an album from 2013. Um, that is anything but fluffy, let's say that. Um, it's um, by an actor I don't think I've talked about much on the podcast before. Uh, I just uh, tweeted this week that they're probably one of the best bands that I sometimes forget existed. Uh, and the album in question is Shaking the Habitual by the Swedish electronic act The Knife. Um, they, I think they, 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 they're, their most prominent uh, position in the um in the shared uh, cultural consciousness comes from um the Jose Gonzalez cover of their song Heartbeats which was used in that advert for a, a, T, a HD television way back with all the balls bouncing down the street can't remember which company it was uh, Sony um, I think sh- yeah I'm sure you remember the the one I mean um that was a very popular song but the original is undoubtedly better I would say and uh well, I've been thinking a lot about um, about what shares what um, what some acts share uh, in in common in terms of um, well so acts that I consider to have been some of the best and to have some of the most flawless discographies. And I don't think a flawless discography always means that absolutely every album every album in your catalogue is superb. But I think it certainly means that there's a certain standard, and then. Often the payoff is the fact that the trajectory of the career um, is, well, it, it's basically exponential in terms of um, the quality of each individual album. And I think that, that certainly applies to The Knife. And I think, well, I've been thinking a lot about aesthetically what ties together a lot of the acts that I like. And I think what 
the knife have in I mean there's a certain I think from a perspective of aesthetics when an act has a discography that I would basically consider perfect it almost adds a certain clarity to the music so even though an act might stylistically have nothing in common with another one that um, shares that in common with them uh, it's almost like it, it ties their music together uh, for me somehow and um, it, when it's, it almost amplifies the way I listen to it uh, so in that sense I could listen to The Knife and The Velvet Underground and even though they're not even remotely similar acts um, there's, there's something about the standard that they uphold that f ties them together for me and, uh, and sort of links them musically um, and that's just something I've been thinking about this week uh, while I was listening to The Knife I was listening to their album Silent Shout from 2006 which is I think generally considered would probably be considered I think it's probably going to be remembered as their best uh, it's a very sleek uh, futuristic sounding but undoubtedly dark and uh, atmospheric electronic record uh, with pop leanings um, and well up, up to the point of that album The Knife had never toured I think and the entire thing sort of lends itself a mysticism and they were quite a cult act but they built up quite a large following Shaking the Habitual, the album that I'm, I'm just going to speak about briefly uh, it was their final album in 2013 and they split um, after it um, they are, they're comprised of two two siblings um, the Dreher siblings um, Karen performs uh, under the name Fever Ray as well there's, uh, there's two Fever Ray albums um, the most recent of which was Plunge a few years ago which I thought was quite underrated is 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 better it's certainly better than well it's a good album it's a good album as I said it's a great album I think and it's 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 not a substitute for the knife even though obviously it is better than nothing but I think when they're together that's when the really supercharged material comes out shaking the habitual is well it's it doesn't mask its revolutionary intent uh, the cover art uh, is part of um what is basically a comic strip that comes with the album uh, which inverts the um, some of the invective and rhetoric that you hear from uh, contemporary politicians uh, treating the poor as less than human it flips that to try and create the impression that wealth is the problem not poverty and a lot of it a lot of the content is inspired by uh, material that they've read around uh, in terms of gender politics trans rights queer theory so it's it's fairly heady stuff that has been poured into the into this the making of this album, but I think what is what's revolutionary about it is that well it's 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 basically the structure of the album, and I think the strength of it in terms of its um, its disruptive qualities comes from um, a place of transposition. So the record is I mean, it's comprised of thirteen tracks, two of which are very short tracks named Oryx and. One is named Oryx, one is named Crake, after the Margaret Atwood novel, Oryx and Crake. Um, but mo in, of, among the other 11 tracks, there's probably about six or seven that you would class as you know, tip, uh, traditionally song-like song -like compositions. Um, some of the, even saying that, some of them are extremely lengthy. Uh, they're, almost, they're, they're quite aggressive electronic tracks, Um which also feature vocals, but also some some incre uh, some lengthy instrumental sections, um, but they're never less than compelling. 
Some of them are a lot more shorter and focused and more in the vein of the Silent Shout album. But then it's what comes in between that. So I think that's where the that's where the album lives up to its title in the sense that the first half of the album, you know, obviously when, you, when you're feeling that the album has some flaw, there's then a 20-minute ambient composition that um, was cut from the album in its, in its single-disc form, uh, which it, I think is unfortunate, really, because it suggests an almost... It suggests an almost disposable uh, element to it, which I think you have to view the album as a whole, really, in its complete form, and I don't think it should be taken away from it in that sense. Um, and then there's a track, um, the penultimate track on the album, again, a Fracking Fluid Injection, which is basically an abrasive 10-minute instrumental recording. And I think these these are the things that really lend the album its, um, you know, that live up to that, that sort of, seismic insurrectionary intent that the band clearly personified by this point in their career um and i think the other things that give the album so much strength are like i mentioned its finality i think it's it's very difficult to it's very difficult to you i mean it's, it's impossible essentially to replicate the conditions of calling a, a work your final piece and it might not it might not always be the final work because we know that acts reunite and they come back but that doesn't feel likely with the knife you know it seemed like it seemed like a definite denouement to their career um and there are classic examples that i could use to show how the final capstone if you like in an act's discography is always it's if it's if it's portrayed as that, and you can see that there's no way that it isn't going to be the final statement, then it lends it lends the album a certain aura that you ca- you just cannot recreate if you if you aren't gen- genuinely approaching it from that angle. Uh, and th- the best example I think, well, it's it's still a discography, but it's not musical. Is uh, Rant in E Minor, the final with posthumous, the final collection of material by Bill Hicks, the late American stand-up. Um, it's recorded with him well aware that he's um, in the process of dying from cancer and it is on that basis that it is the most bitter and acerbic work in a collection of material that is always has always really been of that vein but was often much more playful with it um, and by this point I think it's also his strongest his strong, the strongest of his um, four uh, major album releases of stand-up material it's um you know, it's it's well it really cuts to the heart of what Hicks's material was all about and I think it's a similar effect with the knife in that they've known that going into this album that it was going to be their uh, their final one um, and I think although it's uh, it's not got a Clive friendly runtime with uh, over an hour and a half in length um, especially given some of the you know some of the lengthy and uh, as I say more disruptive so- uh, songs if you want to call them that that are on the album which really lengthen the runtime of it um you know even even though it's um it's it's that long and is it requires a lot of investment to listen to i think it is it is it do, it does definitively capture something about them in a way that even silent shout as the more concise and um probably more focused album doesn't but even if I'm, I still wouldn't accuse this album of having a lack of focus though i think it's still written it's essentially done as a manifesto and I think it, that seems to be something that um, I think there's a lot of um, you know bands from the UK and the US uh, in well I mean in 
in punk, metal, whatever you want to look really, who have, you know, an interest in these sort of areas and have, you know, a socio-cultural and academic approach sometimes to the music that they do. But it's something that the Swedish seem to be uh, particularly good at. Another good example would be um, The Shape of Punk to Come by Refused, which at the time when it came out in 98 was also intended to be their final album, even though that didn't uh, that didn't turn out to be the case. So we'll see if that happens with The Knife. It's now seven, it was a seven year gap between Silent Shout and Shaking the Habitual, and amazingly it's now been seven years since Shaking the Habitual came out. Um, but I strongly, I strongly sense that there's no chance of a of a reunion purely because of the amount of commitment and resolve that seems to come behind all of the decisions they made creatively and otherwise during their uh, time recording music. So just uh, an album that I think has a lot to lot to be said about it, and I probably haven't covered all of it there, but um, definitely a very fascinating one that people who are interested in electronic. And I would say probably, you know, the translation of politics to music as well, equally, uh, should go and check out um, because I think it's a very important entry in that sort of canon. I Awesome. Um, I'm definitely going to listen to this. Sorry, Al. No, no, no. Carry on. Sorry. Um, yeah, I was just going to say I heard um, the knife version of uh, Heartbeats on <laughs> Radio 6 the other day and I'd heard it before, but I've never listened to it massively. Um, and I was just like, yeah, this is so bloody good. I need to check out more by the knife so it's funny that you should uh, bring them up and you've certainly sold me on yeah. um, that album in particular but a lot of their material I need to check out yeah for sure I think it, it, it's almost like they become unte- more untethered as they go on so Heartbeats mm. is like a perfect pop song um, and you can you can see that those that, that part of their DNA continues to exist but the whole thing just becomes it just gets sort of blown up and that's what really makes the you know the way they de- they develop quite interesting to follow. Yeah. All I was going to say, Michael, can you just repeat the name of the artist and album, please? Yeah, it's "Shaking the Habitual" by The Knife. Cool. I got no comment to make, but I'm going to download it and give it a listen. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Comment next episode, perhaps. <laughs> um, and I was going to uh, comment on a couple of other things, Michael. The last album thing you've mentioned, I think, is a really good point. Um, in my little challenge, that's been interesting. Like. For example, Abbey Road, I know it isn't the Beatles' last album, but it was pretty much the one they recorded last. Mm. has that kind of feel to it, and I think it wouldn't if it wasn't their last. And yeah, there is a certain there is a certain vibe and magic to that, which you can't really do unless, <laughs> without it being your last album in a weird way. Um, yeah, and you have to know. It's like, that's the, that's the key thing, I think. Yeah, definitely, and it does give the album a certain added resonance to it. Um, and, and Abbey Road is my favourite album by the Beatles, and it might I'm sure part of that is is that, but I do think it is kind of where they kind of the pinnacle of everything that they did. Um, yeah, and it's fitting that that's also their last. Although, like I say, let it be, but very much recorded before that and a bit more of a messy situation, <laughs> which we haven't got time to talk about. Yeah, but um, yeah, so very interesting. Another thing is, I think I might be starting to shake the running length stereotype because all right. I feel like my number ones of all these years have been quite long ones, and certainly I've just. Fi- well, I haven't quite finished. I'm literally about to finish the 1970 article, and uh, the winner is, let's just say it's bloody long. I'm not going to leave any spoilers. Well, I know but, what it um, is. <laughs> I think you probably know what it is. Yeah. But I've also been listening to, and this does, this is a 1970 album, and it is a bloody long one, and it will probably come fairly high up. It isn't the number one. Um, George Harrison's All Things uh, Must Pass, uh, which is like a triple album, I believe, like one of the first triple albums. So it's really fucking long. But um, enjoying that, and it's not... And I'm not like... 
I don't think I've ever looked at a running length and gone, oh, fuck's sake. <laughs> it's too long. Uh, but I think I have done a little bit, whereas now I'm a bit more like, when I get them, I just think of it as a different different experience. I'm like, okay, cool. This is one I'm going to have to live in for a bit and yeah. will be probably automatically just a bit more mysterious. And I quite like that idea about it. I think I've talked about before that you it's take, it takes you longer to get to the bottom of a longer album naturally. And there's there's something kind of nice about that, that you can listen to it quite a lot of times without really knowing. It takes a while to get to that point of knowing like, okay, I know exactly what song's coming next. I know what's going to happen here. It feels unpredictable for longer, which I like. Um, yeah. Whereas something under half an hour, whatever you get on top of more quickly. So yeah, it's definitely becoming coming to appreciate longer albums. And it's, it's just a different thing, isn't it? So, Often a long, the long albums that I love, they wouldn't. There's no way they'd be the same if they weren't as long. Um, and the number one from 1970 is a prime example of that. Yeah, but I, th- I think what's what's unique about this album is, although it's long, what I was trying to get out with the mention of transposition is that it's not looking to cater to anyone. It's it's doing whatever they they want to do, and large portions of the album are arguably unlistenable, and they coexist next to much more. Uh, technical uh, accessible pieces even though they're often quite long Um, and it's like you could easily edit that down to an album of a normal running length that just contains the um, you know the more engaging material but that wouldn't be the point the point of the album is to listen to it as it's been put out there by the act really I think Uh, and that's that's part of what I think makes the the intentional difficulty of the way this album's structured is is an inherent part of its character, and that's that's really what I was trying to summarise. Uh, but I think it's good that we talk about the way albums are structured quite a lot on this podcast because it's so vital to the listening experience of them, um, and you can't divorce an album from that. So I think I think it matters, and this is a good example of how you could study the ways in which that matters, um, generally and specifically in this case. Anything else, Alex? Sorry, we. I thought you were coming in, but (laughs) oh no, no, no. just made a noise. Uh, That wasn't me. That was Michael. I think. I was just. I was just going to say on the subject of the seventies. I listened to a couple of albums yesterday. Um, I listened to one from nineteen seventy, which I don't think will get on the list because it won't be high enough in the rankings. Uh, But it's definitely in. It's definitely in a similar vein to the one I know you'll have at number one, so I'm not going to say what it was. I don't want to spoil it. And then I listened to one from 71 that I'm pretty certain will be because it'll be that high high up, but I didn't listen to it for a while, so I was pleased to revisit it. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, enjoy- I'm enjoy- still still enjoying the challenge, obviously. Great time. I've actually reviewed 15 albums for this one, so... Bloody which is hell. More than that is- purely because I ran down the list and I just couldn't stop. Um, couldn't stop finding ones that I wanted to listen to yeah, and then I got to 13 thing, yeah. and realised I didn't have a single female artist on there which was purely because I'd gone down the list and there wasn't one yet Yeah. Um, so then I made a conscious decision to add a couple more, go uh, go down and add the top couple by female artists to up the representation a bit, um, which would turn out to be a fantastic decision because both those were fabulous um, but I'll say no more so yeah, it's really difficult to you just look at a year and it's like, this is what I've always loved about these and I've gone on about it uh, loads on the podcast. Is There's just so much stuff. Uh, you look at it a year and you're like, bloody hell, I could listen to, you know, I could pick 50 of these that I really want to check out. I'm never going to get to the end of the challenge if I do, but <laughs> it's yeah. nice knowing that they're, that they're there. And even when I finish the challenge, I'll be like, oh, there's still a shit ton to go through. Um, 
so yeah, it's kind of awesome how much great stuff there is. And I think that probably, I think that feeling is going to increase the further I get along the challenge because I think it becomes a bit more e- easier and easier for bands to record things and cheaper and cheaper for recording to happen, which means yeah. more stuff gets recorded. Whereas like now, for example, pretty much anyone can record an album if they want. Um, so yeah, it's definitely fascinating. Yeah, it's very worthwhile for those reasons. Yep. But anyway, um, it's time for Al to give us your your final contribution. Okay, uh, that sounded quite ominous. That uh, it did, it didn't it? I, I don't like the this, yeah. It sounded a bit like it was going to be your final contribution before ever, the uh, before it, the tempest kicks in. Yeah, there's going to be. <laughs> well, it sounds like there's going to be a little edit at the end of the pod where um, we've decided to let Alex Wayne go. Um, we let him get in a last couple of reviews. Better make this a good one. Um, Maybe a bit like Abbey Road or the Knife album, which I've escaped me again. (laughs) This will um, add some extra weight to your final review. Okay, well, I'm going to talk about um, one of the kind of shows of the year, really. Uh, It's been a big talking point. It's been huge in the UK and pretty big in America as well. It's a joint venture between BBC and HBO. Um, It's I May Destroy You, uh, written and created by, and directed, in fact, by Michaela Cole who you may know from um, shows like Chewing Gum, and you may even know from uh, the USS Callister episode of Black Mirror. It uh, stars Michaela Cole, so she's got a lot of jobs in this one, um, Warwick Opia and Papa Esiadu. Um The plot uh, centres around a character called Arabella, who is loosely based on Michaela Cole herself, although I'm pretty sure mainly fictional. Um, she's a social media star and writer, who's under pressure to produce her second book. Uh, one night she abandons her work uh, to party with her friends, um, but wakes up with flashbacks of a sexual assault or, or rape. Um, supported by her best friends Terry, uh, Opia, and Kwame, as you do, she attempts to rebuild her life uh, while their lives become very entangled, both with hers and with other forms of sexual assault. Um I think the first thing to mention about this one is despite the fact that it you know the main plot point is rape and there are various forms of sexual assault in the show um the show has a really refreshing tone um for something so dark um Michaela Cole managed to write manages to write several near perfect jokes uh which will make you laugh out of nowhere um there'll be a a, a scene of stomach churning uh, churning trauma that they talk about later and almost as a coping mechanism, uh, Bella or Arabella uh, manages to kind of joke her way out of the situation, um, which frankly is is quite accurate. Really, um, several times I've been at a funeral and people have cracked some of the best jokes I've ever heard. Um, I think it's a creative decision that really reflects the reality of life and the fact that people's lives go on after they've been a victim of sexual assault. And honestly, the the fact that a huge percentage of women um, have experienced sexual assault in one respect or another, and the fact there's a tiny conviction rate, so, you know, what are you going to do? You can't just stop your life. Um, It focuses narratively on Bella's recovery, but also on her general struggle to exist on a semi-poverty wage, despite the fact she's, you know, socially media famous. Um... It's a majority black cast, um, but it's rare in the fact that race is rarely the issue. Uh, In fact, race is rarely part of the plot point. We're just seeing a black British uh, culture 
in a way that I certainly haven't ex- experienced enough, which may, may say more about my viewing habits than it does about the show, but I found refreshing. Um, the narrative is also often quite non-linear, uh, so there's plenty of flashbacks uh, to Arabella's past, uh, but there are also flash-forwards to potential futures, um, which are often su- surreal and very much toy with the genre, um, creating a kind of a juxtaposition of style. Um, I'll I'll be honest. I watched the first couple of episodes and I really enjoyed it. Um, but I found some of the characters um, a little irritating. But then the more I watched it, the more I realised that that was often the point. The characters are very three dimensional. Um, whereas Arabella and other people, who I won't mention in the show, um, are victims of obviously horrible crimes. That doesn't mean they're not capable of being narcissists or being um, inconsiderate. Um, I thought it was an incredible bit of writing, um, an incredible auteur project, really. Um, yeah, I, I would seriously recommend it. And has anyone else seen it? I haven't seen it, no. But um, my friend Mim recommended it, and she, in fact, said I need to watch it and talk about it on the podcast because it'll be good. And I was like, yes, I do. So I'm glad you've brought it up. But I'm definitely it's on my list to get to soon. And uh, you've pushed it higher up. Yeah, I've heard um, lots of people talking about it, and everyone's. It is brilliant. Everyone, yeah, everything everyone said about it, even those who haven't liked it as much, the thing they've said they didn't like were like, oh, I'd probably like that. Um, so I was just like, yeah, I need to watch this. Well, like I said, I think the only things that really I didn't like, I grew to like later. I think hmm. at first, and I think I'm as guilty as this as anybody else, sometimes when you don't have um, a likable character, or, or not necessarily one who's dislikable, but does something that you think is uh, irritating or, uh, you know, social faux pas, you tend to kind of forget that these are supposed to be real people. They're not supposed to be just, um, you know, mm-hmm. one-dimensional, this person's all right, this person's a bit shit. Um, and the fact that the the entire narrative plays with your perception of these people um often making uh, somebody who is in one example that again i won't mention um you know into a bit of a bad guy or at least you know somebody whose actions you seriously question um i thought it was outstanding writing i mean i won't pretend i can completely uh, relate to the characters on screen which is in nothing to do with um you know, black British culture. It's more to do with the kind of millennial living in London culture that I haven't experienced, um, mm-hmm. the kind of lifestyle. But I thought it was enthralling. I thought it was um, a brilliant bit of TV. And I heard a story that Michaela Cole rejected an offer of a million pounds from Netflix uh, to go elsewhere. And I'm really glad she did that, actually, because as much as Netflix put out a lot of great content, um, one of the main reasons she rejected that uh, was because she wouldn't have kept creative control. And this is such an auteur project. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, there are other people involved. But um, I'm really glad she got to put out a full full version of her story here. I want to watch uh, I want to watch Chewing Gum first, which I was surprised to see is on Netflix, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd, I don't understand why Netflix would be looking to take that control away. I mean, to me, it just seems like bonkers. I don't, to be fair to Netflix, I don't think they necessarily wanted to take away control, but I think they wanted the right to have some say if they didn't like something. Yeah. Um, and she just wasn't prepared to. Uh, apparently, she only asked for, and they wanted the entire intellectual rights as well. 
Um, apparently, she said to them, look, you know, can you even just let me keep 5%? Because, you know, she felt it was her baby, basically. And that yeah. just wasn't something they were prepared to do. Um, so I, I don't know what well, percentage of the rights she owns now, but it's at least 5%. Fair play to her, because that's preposterous. Yeah. It'd be interesting to know how... I don't really know enough about... I know more about it in music, but don't really know film like how that works in terms of how much intellectual rights the <laughs> the companies own as opposed to the people it wouldn't surprise me if that is pretty common that they just own all of it yeah um, I, I would I, I would know. I would imagine that you know when it's a you know quite quote unquote Netflix original I would imagine that they are buying the entire show to do with with what they like basically um yeah. I think maybe when they are buying shows to put on Netflix that didn't originate on Netflix. I imagine they probably don't keep the entire rights then. But uh, it's just it's just fascinating to think like how different the landscape would be if artists were trusted, isn't it? Because I mean, Alex sent me a a retrospective um, from I think it was from Vice, wasn't it? This week of um, yeah. an oral history of Four Lions, and it's incredible to think that they had difficulty financing that film. And I, I understand that it's obviously controversial subject matter, but think about how much of a legend of British comedy Chris Morris already was at that point, and he still struggled to get funding to make that film. So we could have easily missed out on one of the best and most sharply observed sharply observed comedies ever made because of that. And I mean, it's just it's just it's just a shame, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, on on the the only other the only counterpoint I might make to that is. While Netflix, by the sounds of it, want to keep the entire, you know, intellectual copyright, often they will give directors, particularly huge name directors, carte blanche to do what they want. So even though they could theoretically, uh, you know, sick their oar in, they they quite often are known for not doing that, Um, which has led to a few indulgent projects on Netflix uh, where maybe well, yeah. the benefit of a producer or an editor could have reined somebody in from their worst instincts, um, but it doesn't. I would imagine they're much more likely to, um, you know, want editorial control over something uh, like I May Destroy You, which is not a debut a debut project from Michaela Cole, but it, you know she's not massively experienced. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I think that that is that is the time in someone's career where that sort of interference could potentially prevent them from becoming the sort of name who has a right to control their own stuff later. Um, mm. So, I, I don't know. If you're trying to find that balance, yeah. then, yeah, it is difficult, but it's just it sometimes seems a bit cynical. Yeah, I would agree. Un- unfortunately, it's, it's a business at, you know, at the same time. Yeah, well, that's, that is the sad fact, yeah, and that's that's why it's happening. Yeah. But, yeah, anyway... Yeah, exactly. Let's not end on a low note. It's a really good show. It's worth it's <laughs> oh, worth yeah, it. Yeah. It's worth its hype. I I can't imagine anybody I know watching it and not at least liking it. You might not like it as much as me, but um, you know, I think you'll appreciate its artistic merit. Yeah, cool. So it's interesting, isn't it? The the role of um, I like to bring it back to the discussion a little bit. The role of producers and stuff, um, because I think in music and film it's quite different. Like in, I feel like in music, um, often quite a lot of the best albums have benefited from having a really good producer on there but the producer is is in a way a bit more of an artist i don't know if that may be unfair yeah. the, the producer uh, to, yeah but it's not always the same is it but in music the producer is basically a part of the act 
Yeah. Not mm-hmm. always. Some of them are extremely laissez faire from what I've heard. Uh, but I think that I don't think that's typical, and I think that comes more from a position of complacency and laziness. Because from what I heard, by the time Rick Rubin was already a dinosaur of production, although he's done some decent stuff, he does you know he does make some hit. More recently, I mean, he does he does sometimes hit. Uh, but I think he went through a period where, from what I've heard, he basically just went yeah, get on with it, and turned up every now and again, basically did nothing, and then released the album way too loud. <laughs> yeah, standard. Yeah. I think, yeah, definitely. I think that, w- with film producers, um, they're often um, not necessarily in that much involved creatively, but will make a decision. And so they are um, they're presented with something. They they won't have put anything in up to that point, but will say, "Look, you could do with losing this, or you know, losing ten minutes here." Um, well, I mean, we, we've really we've really come full circle, haven't we, from the apocalypse now discussion? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I mean, to use a football analogy, a producer in film is often like a director of football. Um, they are getting the money in. They they often might even be doing the scouting for the casting. And um, if they if they've bought up the rights to a product, they might be actually bringing the director in, even to give the director creative control. But they are not that involved in the day to day making or the creative decisions. I definitely think yeah. that can be healthy. I think what I'm thinking more of is the the. Um, the, the suits who don't actually have any involvement in the process wanting to get their grubby fingers into the uh, into the artistry of it that's well, what I'm, that's what I'm yeah. talking about really like I'm not going to tell it again because I think I might have told it twice already on this podcast but that story the about Weinstein story about director Bong with Harvey Weinstein yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> best ever <laughs> yeah for sure indeed um, great well some good discussions there but we're now up to one hour ten which means we need to draw this to a close. Yeah, that is um, a long time. Um, it's can't. it's still it's still twenty five minutes shorter than shaking the habitual by the knife. <laughs> well, we, we we might match it because we've still got. It depends get into- how long this queef is, doesn't it? Uh, well, yeah, it, I can tell you it's three seconds long. So oh wow! Not twenty five minutes, unless the reaction's going to be really long. <laughs> I d- well, that, I mean, it's going to take something special to beat the last two, I think, from the last podcast, because they were they remain ingrained in my mind. <laughs> um, I can't remember what this one is. I remember it being good. My re- response on WhatsApp was pure gold as always. So we'll, see. <laughs> we'll see what this is, but it's three seconds long, so prepare yourelves. Brilliant. Chocolate-covered pretzels are a significantly underrated snack. What what was the first bit? I didn't catch the first bit. Choc- oh, let me play it again because it went it went a bit fuzzy. Yeah, my phone. Was it chocolate really? covered pretzels? So. Yeah. <laughs> chocolate covered pretzels are a significantly underrated snack. Um. No, I I've, I think I think I disagree. I think I don't think I've are, had one, but that sounds bad. I think pretzels are pretty awful. I've got to say. I think. Um, Ooh, but have you had? pretzely chocolate like i don't know about chocolate covered pretzels i don't think i've had those specifically but aldi they do chocolate with pretzels in it and it's fucking great yeah that might be all right but i think in general pretzels they're too crunchy they turn powdery they're just salty um, they remind me of aeroplanes yeah i feel like um a little bit offended now because when i got when i went to aldi i was off with pretzels but <laughs> i feel like that i feel like that was now just because aldi doesn't like oh that my was, god you've dug yourself a hole <laughs> no, that was because that their Nicola's uh, Nicola's a big fan of pretzels. I am not so much. I was going to say mean, he's, he's never offered me pretzels, so you know I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, I, I will if they're in front of me. I'll have one or two, but you know, 
I'm eating them and I'm thinking I could be eating crisps here or nuts, you know. <laughs> well, have you ever had a proper pretzel where it's like actual, just like bready, soft? No. You know, like it. Okay, they're great. Yeah, I think you'd yeah, like them. they sound amazing. And you know, I, I'm just talking about the little ones you get out of a bag. Uh, but maybe I'll, I'll ask Josh to um, clarify maybe a specific brand of pretzel. Maybe we can line up a sponsorship deal. Yeah. And um, also try them and, and come back more on that. But I can imagine them being good. Salted chocolate is surprisingly good. Yeah. I'm, so, I mean, so, I'm not a fan, you know. I'm not a fan of it. I just think it's a bit pointless. I like what chocolate a, already, you know. What about... No, I know what you mean. I'm generally of that view. I'm like, just fuck off with all the added crap. But uh, <laughs> I just want chocolate. Uh, but yeah, I quite like salted chocolate. Now what about salted caramel? What are you a fan of that, Clive? No. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, again, I wouldn't really have it. I wouldn't generally have it in chocolate because I wouldn't really, you know, I'm a whisper guy, not a whisper gold because oh, no. doesn't need any extra stuff. Whisper Gold's the best. I saw yeah, Whisper, Whisper Gold's top three chocolate bar easily. This discussion was happening on Twitter the other week. Someone had said Whisper Gold was hands down the worst Cadbury's bar. I was like, what the hell are wow. you talking about? No, it's definitely bollocks, to be fair. Yeah. There's a lot of bad Cadbury bars. Um, yeah, I'm not sure there's that many. Um, <laughs> fruit and nut, fuck off. No, fruit and nut, fruit and nut, fuck off. Fruit and nut's great. What was the other one, sorry? Nice. No, I'm just not. Whole get nut. rid of it. That's nice too. Yeah, get rid of it. Yeah, no. whole nut. I, I don't pockets. really need, but you know, um, I think the worst, the worst Cadbury bar, um, Chomp. Nah, Chomps are good. Chomps are nice. Nah, they're a bit. They're, they're too wishy washy. If they're going to be, they, they need to be thicker if they're going to exist. <laughs> I'm gonna. No, I'm gonna That's put out a controversial opinion. <laughs> Let me explain it before you savage me. <laughs> I'm going to say Freddo's, and I'll tell you why, because mm. Freddo's were great when they were 10p, 20p. Now they're nearly 50p. There's no point. Oh, yeah, but, I may as well yeah, just have just, the dairy milk. That's just the American business model that you're having to go out, not Canberra. Well, you know, that's my protest. You've turned what was a great little snack chocolate bar in the shape of an adorable frog <laughs> into something bad. I agree. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. But it's not, it's not the chocolate's fault. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I agree. Freddo's do seem bits just like just get a dairy milk now. Right, it's extra ten p. You've got a bigger bar, and it doesn't have any. Added Although they did, they did ruin the shape of dairy milks as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I'm I mean, what the hell were they doing? I don't know what the new. <laughs> <laughs> what you mean the rounded? Yeah, I don't know what that even is. I mean, we all know the best shaped chocolate bar is a Toblerone, where it's painful to eat it. Um, <laughs> do so. love a Toblerone. Do love a Toblerone. Also, by the way, what is the new Cadbury obsession with putting fucking Oreo in everything? It's oh, just like, yeah, I don't want that. No, Oreo's not even that great. So why are you cramming so it in everything? The, it's the second worst were... dairy milk bar after the Turkish Delight. Yeah, oh, wow. I'm okay. going to go with you there, yeah. I think I'm probably agree with you, although there's probably worse ones that I can't remember. That's yeah, probably their worst, that's, that'll be their worst bar, to be fair. To yeah, like. d- yeah, I mean, easily. Let's be honest, yeah. <laughs> Get rid of it. Get rid of the Cadbury's. Fuck off. I'll, I'll tell you what I think is a, is a crap bar, actually. I'd never choose to have one, but I think this is probably going to be controversial because I know if people like them. Curly Whirly. Nah. I'm that, with you. Nah, it's a great Overrated. bar. Great bar. It's crap. You just <laughs> don't like... It, you look just, how thin it is. Yeah, but it's you know it it's a little bit out there. It's a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, I don't, a chocolate bar with <laughs> holes in it. 
to quote Michael Johnson from this very episode, it needs to be a bit thicker if it wants to exist. <laughs> nah, it, it's all, it's long though. That's the point. It's you know, it's it's long, it's chewy, it's toffee. You know, well, it's not enough toffee, not enough chocolate. It's just what is it? All, all why is more. it why is it curling all over the place? I did. Uh, I did I enjoy fancy the fact one that now. I might go to the shop and get one. We've done the marketing for them. I I, I did enjoy once that once we were at work and um, uh, one of the credit controllers from downstairs was up on our floor walking about eating one, which for whatever reason I found inherently hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. Um, Well, we still aren't challenging the knife, but... um... (laughs) I think we should just market this episode as being about chocolate, really. Yeah. <laughs> Bring in some of the foodies. This is the best thing about Josh's queef. It's just, uh, you don't know where it's going to take you, do you? No. Yeah, just was not expecting this. <laughs> no. A, ch- a chocolate debate, but I'll, we'll get back to you on the chocolate pretzels. Um, cool. So, Al, I think you've probably got to say something. We've got to sort of... Uh, uh, well... Looking at the time, there's only one deduction I can make. I think you're on the same wavelength, Clive. Oh, shit, I am. It's plug time! And I believe I'm supposed to do it in a Trump accent. I believe you are, yeah. Now, I can't... Okay, (laughs) I'm going to do this, and I'm going to put the disclaimer at the start. The views, the subsequent views, are not my own. (laughs) Those likely Have you written this? I haven't written this at all, no. Oh, I right. kind of wish I had. I wish I'd prepared something, but it's it's off the cuff. Um, but I just feel like I'm going to say some controversial things, but it's because I'm channeling Trump. Oh, we're ready. Not we're because... ready for it. <laughs> Plug time! All right, um, people. This is not how Trump talks, but he does now. So just pretend. <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> so uh, you can go on at stick around cast you can go on the twitter fucking love twitter you can also follow at real donald trump on there if you want to just eat up dog shit all fucking day um but at stick around cast loads of stuff on there every time there's an episode it will go on there every time there's an article goes on there talking of articles head on over to stickaroundpodcast.com click on articles i'll click on clive's album challenge load of articles specifically about top five albums of every year 1970 coming up soon um it's a pretty great list uh, but there's some great, some incredible, incredible Americans on there, but also some foreign shit. But um, yeah, it's all right. Check it out. Uh, you can also find us on where else can you find us? Facebook.com/slash/stickaroundpodcast. Don't really like Facebook, but um, too much fake news on there. Um, but you can find stuff on there. No fake news on it. Stickaroundpodcast.com. Uh, Fucking. The, the the Facebook. I, I lost my train of thought. Oh, hang on. Someone, someone's got a question at the back. Um, why aren't we on TikTok? Why don't you go and ask China? China. Um, <laughs> just like like ask the whole country. You know the landmass. I'm sure it'll answer your question. Um, we've also got. That's it, I think. Email us, stickaroundpodcast.com. No, stickaroundpodcast at gmail.com. Again, it's sort of problems or... Not really problems. If you've got any comments about Stick Around or or the, uh, the, the White House, put them there. I'll answer it. Um, I, th- I think that's it. Someone's calling for a round of golf. 
Um, my main criticism wouldn't be the the impression. It would be you were far too articulate there, Clive. Uh, too That's many big point. words. I feel like I need to read too many big. All the words are on stickaroundpodcast.com. <laughs> all the best words are on there. Bigly. Uh, but yeah, I agree. I didn't. I don't think I said really, really enough, and, and just used words like incredible constantly, uh, and just sort of. Sort of vocal all caps. I think he prefers uh, tremendous. Is one of his favourite ones. Oh yeah. Um, Clive's latest article is tremendous. <laughs> you also said you love Twitter, but when I think about it, I think he loves the platform, hates the institution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. You're probably right. I think I just fucked it. Yeah, um, we love it, Clive. Um, like it, it, it's it's really. You know, you'd assume that we were putting a master impressionist to the task every time, and I think I think it, I think it works <laughs> because because just because you're adequate, you know. It's, uh... Plus, you can always just go the ball selector route and just make it nothing like the actual. You know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe that's what I was doing. Um... Yeah, let's say that. <laughs> let's say that anyway we're on one hour 20 this is madness so it's time to say bye alex wayne you've been a splendid version of alex wayne thank you clive you've been a splendid version of clive fisker oh fuck off <laughs> <laughs> i only take compliments if people get my name all right fisher all right yeah good thanks <laughs> uh michael johnson you've been a splendid version of michael johnson You've been fantabulous. Wow, I like that. Good word. Creative. Um, great, we'll see you next week. Well, we won't see you. We'll, you'll hear us next week for whatever, all sorts of stuff. More lockdown goodness. And remember to stick around. Stick around. Stick around. Thank you all for listening Rest assured that you have found The best podcast in the universe It's Stick Around Bit too erotic there actually Very erotic Turn that down <laughs> Ooh, Jesus <laughs> come up. He means it's cock-like <laughs> <laughs> There's neat porn on it. <laughs> Someone had to say it. <laughs> Gantic Cardiff. Have, have full sex with woman. Come back on National Express coach. <laughs> the, although the best bit of that is definitely when uh, he said she had big frizzy hair. And part he's like, what, like Bob Dylan? Ah, she looked a bit like him. <laughs> <laughs>